Hello, and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups. I'm joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, Dominic. Hey, Dom. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Just dealing with this post-monsoon weather we've been having in New York. I know. My gosh. (laughs) But thankfully, a sunnier story today on the podcast. We're talking to Kamakshi Shivaramakrishnan, the CEO and founder of Samuha, which is a startup developing a cross-cloud data collaboration platform to help people securely share their data. Let's dive right in. Hey, Kamakshi, how's it going? Hi, Becca. Great to meet you. It's well. Great. Well, I think a good way to get started here is why don't you tell us a little bit about Samuha? Yeah, Samuha is a company that is building a capability around secure data collaboration. Living in the age of data that we are, we as businesses, enterprises, certainly as consumers, et cetera, are dealing with tons of data, especially when you think about businesses and enterprises, tons of data. But despite that, no business, however big or small they are, has a complete view of their customers. Businesses get better by partnering with each other around their customer data, their proprietary data. But as it goes, there is a chance that there is sensitive data here. You do right by customers. You have you know, license agreements with your customers and end users on how you deploy their data. So the ability to collaborate and partner and just get smarter from a business perspective comes with the need for having a secure data collaboration platform. So Samuha is bringing the kind of secure data collaboration as a one big easy button capability, agnostic of the underlying cloud environment, et cetera, that the product sits on or the platform sits on. And as a result of which, for businesses, just like it is as easy for a business to spin up a Slack and can enable productivity and collaboration across teams in their business, just as simple as that, Samuha is a product that will be native and resident on their data cloud and their data infrastructure, bringing the same ease, easy button and ease of use now to secure data collaboration as much as it was possible around team collaboration and communications and productivity exercises. It's basically bringing the same easy intuitive workflow, but doing that for data. And that's such an interesting space. And what you mentioned is sort of the concept of how it would be really helpful for a lot of companies to be able to collaborate on different data sites, be able to see what each other had. How did you get interested in this space to begin with? Yeah, such a great question, right? I've been in the space of advertising and marketing tech for the course of the last 15 plus years or so. And this category is hungry for data, just like every other kind of, you know, business online, every other product online is so much more data informed today. And as a business, as a product, you very quickly realize that the activation of data is very much tied to how rightly you treat that data. And this was something that was front and center for me over the course of the last decade plus or so when I have encountered problems around this, whether it was in my previous company that I founded, even before that, whether it is at Google, whether it's at Microsoft, places I've worked at, which were companies that acquired the businesses that I was a part of. So the ability to securely transact customer data, build valuable insights from a business perspective, increase the value of business itself was something that was evident, whether it was in advertising, marketing, tech applications. When you think about healthcare, this is an industry I've come to like learn more about and understand more about. It's as much prevalent there. You think about financial services, every business is a digital business today. And dealing with customer data is front and center. So no matter which use case or which industry, the ability to securely treat your customer data is a 
fundamental pillar and capability every business is looking to have. So that's why we are looking to build, as I said, a transformative business and a transformative capability that makes it super easy for businesses and enterprises to do right by their customer data and do that by actually collaborating amongst themselves while respecting regulatory, compliance, security, privacy, kind of governance criteria, and also principles of their own business. So to your point, when I ask about like, how did I realize this? It's over the years of experience. And as we see the other industries also evolving ourselves, very simply put, every business is an online digital business today, and there is customer data. And how do you treat right that customer data? Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned that this is not your first business that you founded, maybe if you want to touch on that quickly and sort of what your whole founder journey has looked like thus far, did you always think you would be an entrepreneur? You know, I've, I've shared this in some of my sort of, you know, past conversations. I would say that every founder journey is unique, as we all can probably relate to. There is no kind of one successful recipe for foundership. Mine is similarly unique that way. I would probably characterize myself even as much as an accidental entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I didn't design for that career path. In fact, no one in my family or people in my kind of, you know, extended friend networks are necessarily entrepreneurs or that was not a planned exercise. But when you are in like the right environment, the right network, the right school, the right company, you, you kind of learn this, you encounter this, you are inspired by ideas. And especially being at Stanford and Silicon Valley at the heart of innovation, even today, despite sort of other innovation centers springing up all over the world, Silicon Valley is it's still a special place. So that's kind of what inspired me to kind of go out and do this on my own. And of course, there are certain personal traits and characteristics as well. I love solving problems, love owning my own kind of destiny, carving it out, the plus and minus that comes along with it. And the moment you relate that kind of personality trait to an opportunity that you believe can be transformative for an industry, a product, a problem that businesses or consumers face, I think that's effectively the blueprint of how entrepreneurs are born. But each story is unique of its own. Definitely. Yeah, I have a question in terms of what has been the most challenging part of having a data company like this, like what is an element of it that maybe you weren't expecting to be so difficult that turned out to be really, really hard? I would say in this company, we are actually trying to make it easy because, you know, being a data company is hard because there is regulation, there is compliance, there are, you know, agreements in terms of terms of use of data, especially consumer data or customer data, etc. So every business has to build a lot of apparatus from a product capability perspective, to be able to be compliant, to take positions and represent to their customers and the consumers that they're doing right by their data. It's about how every data attribute is treated. It's how, you know, you build in compliance that into your core product capabilities. So, you know, the whole practice of data products is something that every company has to develop expertise around because every company deals with, with data and there is some element of sensitive consumer and or customer data. So the difficulty comes in the following way, shape and form. Many a times, while it is integral to every company's successful kind of business strategy, it does not come baked in very easily. Every company has to design this problem. And, you know, there are lots of considerations based on the nature, shape and form of your data. And many a times, engineers and product managers and especially businesses can deem this kind of compliance and doing right by security and privacy as a limitation because it comes in many a times as an afterthought. After you kind of design your core product, you're thinking about all these capabilities. So Samuha was born precisely because of that. We want to make it easy for businesses to do right by their customer data and their consumer data. 
So you leave the privacy, governance, security to a product like Samuha. You focus on your core product. And this is natively built at the source of your data, which is the cloud itself. So building it cloud natively, building it as close to the source of data itself, which is where Samuha is, it basically eradicates some of these challenges that come into businesses, products, teams, et cetera, who have to deal with data. As a result of his data, as a result of it, data product management is extremely important, but it is still not their core. So it is deemed as kind of another thing that they have to worry about or deal with. And that exactly kind of ends up in situations where there is exposures, there's soft spots because businesses have not done and have not instituted the right capabilities when they touch you know, sensitive data. So hopefully that gives you a sense of what is kind of the root cause of this. And as we are all, as uh, the world across, we are transforming and AI has brought a whole other complicated dimension to data. And it's an active part of conversation today. Like OpenAI came with a bang and now there is all this kind of moment of reckoning around what were the sources of data? What went into getting this much intelligence of a transformer agent? So this is where kind of building in security, privacy natively into the product, right? And making that easy is where the area of innovation exists. And that's kind of where Samuha is playing. And thinking about what you mentioned about how sort of you guys are tackling an area that is important really for every business, but as you mentioned, it's sometimes really an afterthought after people already have systems set up and then they realize, oh, maybe this was a missing piece. So what is it like for you guys selling? And how do you think about approaching companies? Is there an educational element to the sales pitch for you guys? Or are you finding you have a lot of inbound interest? How have you guys thought about getting yourself out there and continuing to grow? You know, the good thing here is that we are living in times where whether it is for reasons of regulation or whether it is the enhanced consumer awareness that has now translated into businesses being more purposeful and deliberate about building these kind of capabilities. Every mistake of the past that teaches us all to build the right way, all of this effectively has now translated to, I don't think that there is as much education that is necessary as much as, hey, there is an easy button here. This is the kind of product capability that makes your need possible in an easy way. So our approach in taking Samuha to market is less around education. It's more around how we are shifting the paradigm. We don't need to bring in software into your sources of data, or rather you don't need to bring in your data out into ours to securitize it. We are bringing our software into your source of data, if you may. So it is sitting exactly where your source of data, your data infrastructure is, and natively on the cloud. That's kind of what I'm talking about, shifting the paradigm, right? So the question is less about education. It's more about an awareness. It's more about the capability and the ease with which it's happening. And look, it's been very rewarding for me over the course of the last 15 years or so, where each business had to kind of build this on its own and do you know a best effort exercise to now we are talking about entire industry categories, whether it's in security, privacy, governance. There's a field of study called privacy enhancing technologies. So all of this is basically translated to hopefully a product class that now makes things, you know, privacy, security, governance, administration very easy. So that's exactly kind of where the industry is. Industry is not looking to be educated and become aware. It is looking to understand what are the product solutions that are actually making it easy. And that paradigm shift of bringing compute to where data sits, which is where we are headed, that's kind of the way of the world. At least that's our conviction. 
And that's where sort of most of our go-to-market is in kind of the educating around the ease of the product rather than educating around the need for a product. Yeah. And what has it been like kind of balancing motherhood and running your business at the same time? You know, that's such a great question, Dom. Like you touched upon something that is so close to my heart. I'll give you an anecdote that happened this morning. I have this recording today. I have a day full of meetings. This morning, I had like meetings starting 8.30. My daughter decides she's supposed to leave for school at 8.15. My daughter decides, she's four years old, by the way. She's the apple of our eyes. She decides she does not want to go to school. And the kind of wrench it throws into your plan. And she decided that was her position for the day until it was about 9.45 a.m. or so. Like, you know, the ability to deal with this kind of the unknown, the unpredictable that happens with a young child, it has been quite kind of humbling also from a learning experience perspective. But it also makes me that much more prepared as an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur, I think, prepared me for like, because in any given day, you get you get to experience the highs and the lows. So much stuff happens. The amount of like, excuse my language or the shit that just comes your way. It's like a lot. So I think that prepares you. I hopefully, at least in my experience, it prepared me for the uncertainties of parenthood in some way. It's like your company is your child in some way, like your non-human child. So it prepared me for it and vice versa, like being a parent. I think I'm a more patient human being. I'm a better leader. I'm a more informed founder. I'm a more empathetic founder. I'm a more empathetic leader. So I think I'm a better founder today rather than the, you know, the previous times. And I would say in summary, it has been a very enhancing experience, but it's not without its challenges on a day-to-day basis, like this morning case in point. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that you feel in many ways it makes you a better entrepreneur because of course, I'm sure you've heard them as well, but Dom and I have heard just story after story of the fact that someone's a mother or they're, they're pregnant when they're trying to fundraise has been used against them by venture capitalists, investors, and the like. And so it's really interesting, the points you bring up about, oh, you're more empathetic, you're more patient, because that all just makes total sense. And so I'm curious kind of like how you've thought about navigating working in startups, being an entrepreneur, traditionally a little bit more male-dominant, more male-leaning, as someone who actually thinks this journey you've had thus far in motherhood is actually helping you. You know, I've had such interesting life experiences among the full spectrum of like, you know, being a parent today. My previous business, Drawbridge, I was in negotiations to sell the company to LinkedIn and Microsoft while I was not proverbial, literally delivering my child. Um, And in some ways, that was enormously challenging to be able to do like tackle two such kind of life-changing events when you're exiting your business to a large company like LinkedIn, a Microsoft company. And at the same time, you're navigating the exercise of a life-changing event of having a child. I remember as I was going into the delivery room, I was having a conversation with one of the sponsors at LinkedIn who said- While you were in labor? Oh my. I was literally in labor. And my, he was like, Look, I think this all things look very positive. Now you go deliver <laughs> your child. And like, you know, that was the sort of the last text before my daughter came to this world. And I remember the nurse asking, what's the kind of work that you do that you're on your phone when you're literally in labor? So I would say that I've become a better human being because I think it stretched the meaning of possible for me. 
Mm. You know, before doing it, I wouldn't have thought it was possible. It's just a learning point. The limit of human spirit and human courage is boundless. We react when we are faced with situations. So what otherwise seems to be impossible, you do it. When you're faced with a situation, each one of us as human beings, we do it. And I live that. And that, you know, there were times when I would think that, was this my best worst year in my life or this is my worst best year in my life? Like it was so challenging. It was two dramatic events that were happening in my life. And now when I look back, I am that much more confident, Becca and Dom. Like I'm more confident as a human being that, yes, the limit or the definition of possibility for me is more than what I know. If I'm encountered with a situation, I'll deal with it. And that's extremely empowering as a founder, because that's kind of one of the most trusted quantities that you have, which is the courage of your own conviction. Mm. And so the meaning of possibility being stretched to that dimension. And then to your point, right? After that, I worked at LinkedIn and then at Microsoft for a few years. And then I started this next company. And I did stop and think with a young child, is this the right time for me to do this? Will I be able to do it? Will I be able to kind of give the child the time while I give everything that I can have for the company that I will be founding? I came away with, you know, the courage of conviction that, yes, it's possible. I can do it because I was it was possible for me to deliver, literally be in labor and deliver the child while the company was being transacted. I can do this, too. And I need to demonstrate to my daughter that, hey, I, the best way to raise a child, they say, is to do it rather than tell them to do it, like demonstrate by action. So this is kind of the journey that I'm going through. And there are times when she comes and says she doesn't even know what it really means to be an entrepreneur. But, you know, the first day of school, a few months back in August last year, she's like, what do I want to be? She was like an entrepreneur. She uh-huh. says the word, but she, I think she probably doesn't even fully understand what it is. So I would say that it's been a very fulfilling journey. And especially for me as a woman, I'm very recognizing of the fact that I'm fortunate in many ways. And exactly to the point, Becca, you said that there have been other women, other girls who've gone through kind of, you know, difficult challenges, whether as a part of their pregnancy or even before. And it is incumbent upon me as a participating member of this society, as a founder, as a female founder, as a female technology founder, to make it that much easier for people who come along with me and who come after me. And that only happens when you recognize that, yes, while I may have not encountered those challenging situations, I'm indeed very fortunate for that. There are others who have. And the way in which we can give, we can pay it forward, we can pay it back and we can pay it sideways. We absolutely have to do that. And as I said, I believe with all the power in my heart that I'm a better founder for having gone through these experiences. And I'm very committed to being able to deliver that to my female founder counterparts. It's not an easy journey. There are lots of challenges that we all go through. There are some learnings, obviously, that I've had that I would love to share. And certainly we can do that, whether it's in the scope of this conversation or certainly which I do when I have networks of female founders, when founders come to me, whether it is for mentorship, advice, how do you raise capital? What do you do as a female founder? It is absolutely true that, you know, there is still a lot of relatively speaking male dominance to it, even despite the active dialogue that happens you know, in the world around us. We are at least living in times like the post Me Too movement that there is a more active conversation that's happening around this. But still, we are very far from kind of, you know, living in an equitable world. So it's Mm -hmm. an active work from all of us. 
Yeah. And to kind of follow up on that, what has it been like navigating this space as a female founder, even as someone who immigrated here 25 years ago? And what have been the differences you've seen from when you first started your companies like 15 years ago to now as someone in the tech ecosystem? You know, that's uh, a great question. And this is something that I am so aware of. I notice I live it and I've lived it. I remember the first company, AdMob, I was a part of the very early team there, and I was the only female engineer. And there was this phrase of like these, the programmers, coders, developers were basically bros. There was this programmer mentality, right, across kind of, you know, engineering teams. And many a times, a lot of female, forget founders, female engineers, that was a small number 15 years back. It's still small, but I mean, at least tended in the right direction in some areas of engineering disciplines. Many female engineers opted out of, you know, startup environments because this notion of do I see other females, do I feel comfortable, do I feel safe, will I be heard, that was something because it was so much more on a relative basis, more male dominated. Whereas in the last kind of 10 to 15 year journey, I've seen steps in the right direction. Today, we are talking about way many more female founders technology founders, and more importantly, female technology founders who build enterprise companies. Where Even today, if you think about hardcore technology, engineering, enterprise companies, and if you think of them and female founders there, it's still a relatively small set. And this was even smaller, like, you know, 10, 15 years back. So yes, headed in the right direction. Experiences were challenging. There are times when you find it difficult to find your voice because whether it is conscious or unconscious bias, the whole notion of being heard in a group, the whole notion of like, you know, I just said this, man, like you just repeated it and kind of made it your own. The whole notion of eye contact, like, you know, I'm I'm in a meeting, I'm speaking about, I'm participating, the ability to have an eye contact, to maintain eye contact. Here are some fun experiences, right? Now it seems fun to me, funny rather to me, but at that time it was painful. When I started Drawbridge and we went to look for our first like commercial real estate for the company office, I went with my head of operations and he was a Caucasian older male. And the building and the real estate, the building owners and the real estate agents for the commercial property would only talk to him. And he explicitly would tell them, she's the decision maker, she's the CEO. But for some reason, both their conscious and unconscious bias directed them to pay attention to the male in the room, especially the, you know, the Caucasian male in the room. And whether it was that, whether it was, you know, finding my voice as a you know, female leader, female founder and CEO in an all-male team. My executive team was all-male for the longest time at Drawbridge until we had our first CHRO who was a female. Understanding how do I navigate that? They're all strong personalities. They all had much more kind of industry experience or longer tenure in their professional life than I did. So how do you find your voice among that? How do you manage that? To I think all of these were such interesting experiences for me. I would go, I've raised four rounds of financing over the course of, you know, my, my entrepreneurial career. And every kind of financing exercise involves a partner meeting in a VC firm. And that is largely all a male audience. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that? There have been some interesting experiences, nothing as kind of, you know, uh, challenging as those that have been reported. But you are very aware, you're very aware of the fact that you're the only female in the room. And 
getting comfortable with that. It's an uncomfortable position. I got comfortable with being uncomfortable. So how do you do that? And those were mm-hmm. the kind of things I still do recall, like a partner like Aileen Lee. She's a very successful venture capitalist herself. She's the founder of Cowboy. She used to be at Kleiner Perkins. And when I did my first round of financing there, how she, I remember locking my gaze into her because she was one among the two females in the room. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to find like, kind of a safe space or a comfort. Like she reciprocated. She gave me that. So I think that's what I talk about being able to pay it forward by just making it safe for whether it's a female founder, a female engineer or a female professional, just making it safe for them to be in this workforce. It's incumbent upon us as female participants in the workforce to be able to do that, certainly as founders and entrepreneurs as well. Did you have any mentorship to help guide you Mm -hmm. um, during these like uncomfortable moments or were you kind of on your own? Look, I think it's been an interesting exercise between sort of how I have handled mentorship. I have been more kind of ad hoc about it, meaning I would go talk to kind of, you know, experienced founders, leaders, CEOs of public companies who have gone ahead of me. But kind of maintaining a formal mentor structure is not something kind of I personally followed. I did that by tapping into the wealth of knowledge that my network had based on kind of the situation that I was encountering. And I would tell you that while there is a lot of kind of what seems to be challenging and bad in this world, there's also a lot of good in this world. It is certainly incumbent upon us to be able to go ahead and seek that and try that. I got a lot of support, a lot of advice, a lot of guidance in the challenging times I've had as a founder in the previous company, Drawbridge. We had to go through a a challenging decision as a company to divest a part of our business. Mm. That basically came with reducing the workforce in the business. I had never done that before for about 50 people. So how did how do I navigate that situation? How do I prepare myself for that situation as a founder and leader? It's the hardest thing to do. I mean, there are moments, this is an example of a moment when you're deciding on kind of, you know, are you going to exit the company when you're being sought after so much by like, I don't know, LinkedIn and Microsoft? How do you make that decision? How do you talk to your board about that decision? How do you bring your board on board with you for this. These are all things that I was able to situationally find the right people in my network to talk to, despite not having kind of a formal kind of mentor structure, if you may. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what you just mentioned and making those decisions with your first company, obviously now you're on your second company and sort of what did you learn from building out Drawbridge, selling it that you are keeping as you're building out Samuhan, what did you learn from building the first company that you know, like, oh, I'm not going to do that again with the second one? I think that's such a great question. Every founder gets asked this and I really pay attention to. Like, you know, many times when you listen to podcasts or founders on panels, this is the one question I really, I know it will get asked to every founder. And this is something that one should pay attention to because I think there's a moment of truth that comes from every founder. However, like there's a varying degree of it, but certainly it comes, right? In my experience, I would say that kind of the culture of the organization is so critical. Like as, you know, first time founders, many a time, we tend to focus on like product market fit, getting like that first sale, getting your first customer, getting your first 10 customers. Many a times kind of the culture that is intrinsic to be able to scale this organization as it goes from one to 10 to 100 to 1,000 people is extremely critical. I veered more towards product market fit than kind of paying attention to the culture of the organization and the team. I think that's the single most kind of critical factor that makes or breaks a company. 
And there is a second related one that I would say is basically a manifestation of this culture, which is that startups are all about ownership. How do different people come together, own parts of the company? And obviously, if the company does well, there are rewards because of that ownership in the company. That is manifested in something called the cap table, which is your equity in the company. And it is more of an art rather than science on how you distribute the equity Mm -hmm. that is available to you so that employees are fairly compensated. And if you ask any founder, I would bet you that either they will be honest about declaring it when they talk about it, or they will not be. But the truth is no founder has gotten the cap table distribution right. I mean, the founders are intimately involved in it in the early days of the company, right? And that's when the most amount of mistakes could happen as well, because that's when most of the equity gets also distributed, because earlier you are more equity in the game because there's higher risk. So managing what is called your cap table, which is at the heart of your incentive and reward structure for startups, is something that I think there's a lot more that is written and talked about today than earlier days as founders mm. and entrepreneurs. There's a lot more material out there. But I think those were my two biggest learnings. Culture, you, there is no tomorrow for culture. Culture is in every day. It's the most critical thing that is the foundation of your company. And rewards is a manifestation. The cap table is holy mm-hmm. for any company. It is holy for, for certainly startups. So how do you manage the cap table so that you do the best for every team member and employee who has contributed to make this company successful? I'm better today than I was before, but it is always a learning exercise. And one thing that I'm always curious about, since a lot of times you see a typical timeline, oh, a founder sells their company, they either, as you did, work at the company that acquired it for a while, maybe move up there, become a VC. I'm always interested in people who go back into entrepreneurship. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, like, what made you decide to take the plunge again? Like, entrepreneurship is definitely not an easy career path. Not that, say, being a VC is, even though they sometimes like to really make it seem like it is. But (laughs) yeah, what made you make the plunge and why then? For sure. I think that's such a great question. I'm so glad you touched upon that. So in my journey, after, like, Drawbridge exited to LinkedIn and Microsoft, I took a good three and a half years before I came back to start my next company. And even before Drawbridge, AdMob was an early stage when when I joined it. And then I went again and started Drawbridge. So I like to think that I'm probably some sort of a repeat offender here as far as entrepreneurship goes. I contemplated between kind of LinkedIn and Microsoft and starting Samuha that, you know, I'll probably you know, there as a VC, you get to see trends, you get to make investments, you get to harbor talent, you get to work with really amazing, courageous founders. And I was like, oh, maybe that's something that I do want to give it a shot. I did try it. Mm. And then when I would sit in these like, you know, pitch meetings, etc., there, there's a lot that I brought to the table in terms of industry expertise, area expertise as a technologist. So I was able to help kind of, you know, VCs, make good decisions. I'm an LP, which is I'm an investor in funds myself in many funds. I was a venture partner in one of the funds. I was informally advising a bunch of funds and I formally considered kind of, you know, going down that path. But through the process, when I would sit in a bunch of these meetings, I realized that the way I would think about the problem is how I would solve the problem. As I was hearing pitches from founders themselves, I was optimizing for their problem as much as I was helping them optimize the problem. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was optimizing the problem ahead of helping them. So I felt like I'm much more of an operator. I like the exercise of starting from nothing and building something out of it. I'm an operator. I like that. And 
as a VC, you get to kind of be a part of the journey by certainly investing and harnessing and, and nurturing, but you're not building it. And the exercise of building, getting your hands dirty. When I would sit in these meetings and I would observe myself, I felt I'm an operator by birth, by design, by fiber, by nature. I am not an investor. I'm an operator. And exactly, you're absolutely right. You know, like being an entrepreneur, being a founder is hard, especially when you've had multiple successes. You do ask yourself, are you willing to kind of live those hard days of especially the very early company days are hard, but there is a lot of joy in it as well. And when you see like the nothing from like the day zero to the journey of the company, there's something extremely fulfilling about it. But you have to be ready for what comes along with it. Mm -hmm. So for me, my experience has been that I am much more educated every time. Now, this time when I founded the company, I'm much more aware. So I set the company up better for success. I solved some of the challenges, even ahead of starting the company. I had set up some partnerships that gave this company a, a leg up because I was aware of some of the go-to-market friction points and challenges that this company and product could have. So you become more strategic, you become smarter, you go in better prepared, your eyes wide open. And the cost doesn't go away. You deal with the cost better mm. because you, you're hopefully you're making less mistakes along the way, right? So that's kind of the learning process, if I may. And for me, while it was certainly a moment of contemplation, especially given the earlier point we talked about, I'm a parent now versus the previous times, but the lure of like building something from ground up and creating it, man, the joy of that is unmatched, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so what's next for you as an entrepreneur and for your company? You know, this is very early days for Samuha, like this category of, you know, if you think about how kind of Zoom disrupted communication in a world during COVID era, how video communication at large, when you think about Slack or when you think about Google Workspace, think about all the collaboration tools, how they've made our lives better, right? If you step back, irrespective of whether you're an industry expert or a technologist, just even as a consumer, if you step back and ask this question, has there been like a Dropbox, a Box, a Slack, a, a Zoom for data collaboration? There hasn't been one. It is not easy because why? Because data is hard. Data needs to be protected. It needs to be secure. There's a lot of challenging problems to do right by sharing and collaborating with data. So that's why for us, I think as a category, it's very early days. Certainly as a company, Samuha, it's very early days. If I could build this company along with my team and take it to a point where we indeed realize this, we build a no excuse and a big easy button solution for any business to collaborate with data. We make every employee, whether or not you're an engineer, armed with data because we enable everyone to become a data scientist, almost a citizen data scientist, because we have made it easy to work with data. Look at the kind of transformation we are living in through the AI kind of journey. And AI is enabled by data. Data needs to be secure. So if we make that, if we realize the vision for that, that's what is ahead for me. Kind of, you know, every day getting the product to get to that vision point of making it easy and making it almost like, you know, data is your birthright. That's why citizen data scientists, I think that's what is ahead of me to build this product every day, mm -hmm. day in and day out. Oh, cool. No, thank you so much, Kamakshi. This was awesome. Well, thank you, Becca and Dom. This conversation was certainly very enlightening. And, you know, my departure statement here would be if even like one founder, female or male, but closer to my heart, a female founder, 
leaves hearing this podcast feeling like if she has done it, I can do it too. I would consider it to be very fulfilling. Amazing. Well, that was our conversation with Kamakshi. Dom, what did you think? I most certainly loved her as a founder and I love her company. Mm-hmm. What did you think was the most interesting part? I mean, her company is actually really interesting and it makes sense that something like that would eventually have to exist for companies to securely share data. One thing I did wish that we asked about was the cybersecurity elements going deeper into that. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what properly to ask, but it seems like there might be things that arise. Mm-hmm. Hackers are getting sophisticated, I think. Yeah, no, that is a good point that we didn't talk about too much, especially because anytime you're bringing a data set into a platform where it is going to be more collaborative, you're obviously opening the door for more people to see the data, which obviously is the point, but that opens the door for people you don't want to see the data coming in as well, too. Yeah, I know. Like, we definitely should have doubled out on that. But, you know, this is (laughs) post-thoughts. Mm -hmm. What did you think about it? No, I thought what was most interesting is the conversation surrounding the founder journey and the experience she had in her first startup, becoming a mother as she was literally going into labor, texting about her company's acquisition, which definitely has been living rent-free in my mind since we spoke to her because that's crazy. That just sums up America. Oh, I know. Of course, you know, while you're giving labor. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's commitment. I know. Having that experience, obviously... Her first company was able to have a great exit, which is awesome. And I thought it was interesting, her thoughts about, oh, I decided, do I want to go into VC? Like, do I want to stay working in a big company? And it's interesting to hear why she decided to start Samuha and kind of like what she took from Drawbridge to Samuha and like changes she made, especially the stuff around culture, I thought was really interesting. And a piece of that was the cap table thing. I feel like a lot of startup founders probably feel that way when they've exited their first company going to their second, but I've never actually heard someone say it. So it's nice to see that transparency around like, yeah, we didn't do dilution. We didn't do like the cap table equity right because I feel like that's probably more common than we realize. Oh, it totally is. And to have like a founder just like admit that, I mean, it was pretty amazing, but I definitely really, really like hearing her stories and everything that she's learned. And especially her talking about how things have evolved since she first got into the tech ecosystem 15 years ago and being like the only woman engineer to kind of seeing how things may be progressing now. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think it was refreshing too, because she mentioned that she knows that the issues that other women entrepreneurs are having or other women in these more, say, technical hard science type space. And she can acknowledge what's going on there, even though she said she hasn't really seen it much herself. So I feel like she's such an interesting perspective and such a, I don't know, like a refreshing acknowledgement that this stuff is happening, even if she didn't herself see it. So still being like, oh, even though I haven't had trouble raising from VC funds, you know, like I hope my story inspires women to keep going, knowing how hard it is for them, which is such an interesting approach that you don't generally get. As you know, I mean, talking to women founders, it's usually like, oh, fundraising was like, it's been the worst part of this journey so far. Like you just so rarely hear about those positive stories for women entrepreneurs and then hearing from someone who not only had that positive story, but acknowledges how she can use that to help other women who are experiencing just the other side of the market. 
I know. I loved her commitment toward paying it forward. But something I wanted to go back to that you, I believe, just brought up. I was really happy and excited when she brought up how important it is to have a good culture of working. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like, I think I always think this about founders, is that some founders are really, really good at creating companies. That doesn't necessarily mean you're good at leading a company. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get all those, you know, exposés of like the worst work environment you've ever seen with a company that is brilliant. So I really like that she acknowledged that and works in a way in which she knows that she also has to foster a healthy working environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when she's talking about like founders, the intense focus is automatically like getting your first customers And she's like, but if you have a bad culture, like, that doesn't even matter at the end of the day. And, like, I just thought that was such a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. You have to take care of the people who are working for you, too. Yeah. I think the other thing that I thought was a really interesting point was this aspect that she thought being a mother has made her a better entrepreneur in many ways, like being more patient, more empathetic, and stuff like that, which I definitely understand. I mean, you read that in other articles, you kind of see that broadly, but it's always so interesting to hear that knowing that investors always look at it as a negative, which is crazy, the divide. I I think I wrote about that and when I did one of those essays a few months ago about like the myths that investors say to not fund women and people of color, because a founder brought that up when they're saying like, oh, yeah, you know, I had investors say like, well, you have time to run the company if you're taking care of kids. And she was saying like, do they not understand that taking care of children requires many of the same skill sets as taking care of other people, mm-hmm. like running a business, you know, empathy, organizational skills, like all of those things overlap. So it's like, of course, mothers would make amazing entrepreneurs. They're running households. So why can't they, you know, probably run a business, too? Yeah. And sort of the differences with like time management, like she was mentioning, like her daughter refusing to go to school. And so she was like, well, like just had to change meetings, just like had to change the plans, still got everything done, like moving on, just being like, yep, I'm flexible. I'm just still going to get it done. Doesn't matter. Moving on. Yeah. The flexibility, too. You have to be flexible. Mm -hmm. She definitely seems like someone that we'll have to keep an eye on, especially because the company is so young. I think they just launched the fall of last year. So definitely we'll be keeping an eye on her because she seems like a force. And I'm excited to kind of see what else she does, even if it's not related to the startup, just kind of what else she does in the ecosystem. I know, right? Me, too. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Majori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.